All right, family, let's open our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14. Last week we looked at the first 12 verses of this chapter, speaking of John the Baptist and how he was arrested for being a faithful man, a faithful prophet, and Herod ultimately putting John in prison there in Machiris on the eastern side of the Jordan River in a desert fortress that Herod had. Remember, Salome danced before Herod and his men, and Herod being so incited with lust and drunkenness that he offered the young girl anything that she wanted up to the half of his kingdom, and being instructed by her mother, Herodias, Herod's illegitimate wife, because Herodias was Philip, Herod's other brother, his wife, so he married his brother's wife, illegitimately, and when John the Baptist spoke out of it, John was put in prison, and after this dance that Salome did, and being instructed by her mother, Salome said, give me the head of John the Baptist. And so Herod went into the dungeon there in Machiris, and had John beheaded and his head brought on a platter to Salome, and Salome gave that to her mother, who hated John. She hated the fact that John's witness was so strong. She hated the fact that he was filled with the Spirit of God. And the disciples came and they buried John's body. And so this morning we're going to look at verses 13 through 21, perhaps even finishing the chapter. Let's just read what happens after this. Notice in verse 13, it says that when John, or when Jesus, excuse me, heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them. And he healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place. And the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. And then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about five thousand men besides women and children. And so as we look at this feeding of the five thousand We have to remember that uh, this event actually is recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. All four of the gospel accounts. And there are two different instances of Jesus feeding thousands of people. The first one is uh, the one that we're looking at this morning, feeding the 5,000, which really becomes more like 10 or at least 15,000, including women and children in that figure. And then later on, On the uh, western side of the Sea of Galilee, over there by Noph Gennesar, or Gennesaret, for those of you who have been to Israel with us, this is the location where another time, uh, and we'll see this in the next chapter, where Jesus fed another 4,000 men. 
And so when Jesus heard it, notice back in verse 13, meaning when he had heard about John the Baptist's death, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. And when the disciples heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. Now, in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 9, verse 10, it tells us that Jesus went over the Galilee to a place called Bethsaida. And it says in Luke 9, verse 10, it says, And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done, because Jesus had sent them out two by two. And then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city of Bethsaida, which is on the uh, eastern side, the, eastern, the northeastern side of the lake. And, and Jesus, again, was bringing them there because they needed to rest. They had been out. He had sent them two by two. They'd been, doing, they'd been ministering, doing a lot of work. And every now and then, a pastor or people serving in ministry need to take a rest. They need to get aside and, and, and refuel and recharge. And that was Jesus' heart for his disciples. He wanted to get them aside so they could be refueled because we really can't give out unless we are filled ourselves. Whatever the Lord gives us, that's what we give. And I'm learning that over time too. You know, there's times where I need to take a break and uh, have somebody else stand in and, and just get refreshed and recharged. And you'll notice that as we go along in this passage, that they really didn't get that rest that they were looking for, in the, in the physical anyway. In fact, the disciples, they went from a, a very interesting miracle where they were very busy serving to getting into a boat and then wrestling the waves and the wind, trying to get back to the west side of the lake where Jesus had told them to go. But Jesus... Before he crossed over to Bethsaida, over to the right side or the eastern side of the lake, Jesus was likely coming from Capernaum, which was his headquarters. Remember, he stayed there with Peter and his wife and his, and her mother, uh, and his mother-in-law there. And when we go to Israel, we visit this house. They've actually discovered the house that Peter lived and where Jesus stayed with him. And it's right next to the synagogue, which we also visit. The foundation and some of the walls and the columns are still there today. So he stayed there, and, and, and this uh, lake of water that they're going to traverse was actually named four different names, really. The Sea of Galilee, it was called Lake Chinnereth or Kinnereth. It was also called the Sea of Tiberias, Lake Gennesaret or Lake Gennesar, and Chinnereth means harp in its original language, and it means just the shape of the, the lake. It looks like a harp, and so they called it Chinnereth. But when Jesus, verse 14, when he went out and saw this great multitude, after he had crossed over to Bethsaida, into that area over there on the eastern side, he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, the hour is late. Send the multitudes away. We, we need some rest, so uh, send them away. <laughs> it's getting late, Lord. We've had a long day. We've had a long season. You brought us here to rest. Send them away that we can rest. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy for themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. 
Now, after this statement in Mark's gospel, remember, because it's recorded in four different gospels, if you take those four gospel accounts and you combine them together, you get a uh, more of a, a panoramic of exactly all the events that happened and the things that were said. And so after that statement, it records for us in Mark's gospel, in Mark 6, verse 37, that he said to them, um, that they said to him at that point, shall we go and buy a hundred denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? They didn't have anything. So they asked him, should we, you know, how are we going to buy this? We don't have any money. And one denarius we know is a wage of one man's work for a day. So 200 denarii was eight months worth of wages. And that was about how much they would need to feed such a great crowd of people. And isn't it true, and, and you know this, some of you know this firsthand, but also understand that where, God's, where man's resources, excuse me, and God's resources begin. Now, God gives us everything. He gives us our jobs, our salaries, everything that we make. But when for some reason our resources are short and we don't have anything, that is when God kicks in. He's given to us all those things, but when, for whatever reason, we come into want, we can always go to him. And that's where we should go first. And they said to him, verse 17, we have only here five loaves, five loaves and two fishes. And that was because a young boy had this in his, his lunch sack. And so he was very happy to give up his lunch to see what God was going to do. And God can always take what is small and wanting and cause it to be more than adequate, to be more than sufficient. In accordance to his will, of course. He doesn't do these things just to make a scene. He doesn't do miracles just to uh, promote himself. There's always a reason for the miracle. Today's tele-evangelists, they do miracles just so they can draw more subscribers and more people listening so that they might get more tithes and offerings. But Jesus never did that. The miracles that he did were because there was a need presently. And he met that need. Whether it was healing, whether it was uh, food, sustenance, whatever it was, the Lord always showed up to help when his people cried out to him. It's almost like it's irresistible to him. When you have a need and you're crying out, maybe you're struggling with making your mortgage payment like we were for 30 years. <laughs> maybe it was something else. Maybe you're struggling with, you know, you're not getting as many hours at work anymore. Maybe you've been laid off. Maybe you're misusing your money and now the, the bill is coming due and you've got to do something because you've mishandled your own funds. Where do you go? Go to the Lord. He's always the best place to go. After all, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He ought to be the first door you knock on. He ought to be the first one you call. He ought to be the first one you text. Lord, help. <laughs> what is his number? 77-777? I don't know what it is. But go to him. And the Lord doesn't do miracles like this, again, just to show off or to be fun. There is a reason. And you remember, even in the Exodus... Remember, it was for survival. It says in Exodus 16 that the children of Israel, they journeyed from Elam when they came out of, uh, of Egypt. 
And all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. And that's kind of ironic, isn't it? Which is between Elam and Sinai on the 14th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when they ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Does that sound like the character of God? To deliver his people, only to deliver them into death. He delivered them from the iron furnace. He delivered them from a horrible thing. Was he going to deliver them to something even worse? No. God never does. When he delivers, it's to deliver. Hence the name, the word, deliver. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall come to pass, every day they will do this, and then it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be as twice as much as they gather daily, because on the seventh day they weren't to do it. And it says in verse 35 of that chapter, And the children of Israel ate manna forty years. They ate manna for 40 years until they came to, a, to an inhabited land. And they ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So for 40 years, they ate manna. They had manna cotti. They had manna burgers. They had manna pancakes. You name it, it had manna in it. But notice why he did it. He provided for them in the desert, Christ God Almighty provided for them in the desert. Why? Because there was a very severe need. They're going through the wilderness, folks. It's not like there is, you know, they don't have an abundance of food around waiting for them. God provided for them and water as well. In 1 Kings chapter 17, it tells us of another instance where Elijah had pronounced a drought upon the nation of Israel. And this was during the reign of Ahab, who was the king of Israel at the time. And Elijah, being a, um, a contemporary of his, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, Elijah, and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose. He went to Zarephath, and when he had come to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. Now back in that culture, hospitality was something that was very significant. Even if you were poor, if some sojourner was coming, some traveler, you would do what you can to accommodate them. Much, very different from the way it is today. They were very hospitable. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and says, Oh, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And so she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread. Only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. So her husband evidently was dead. So now this widow's gathering some, some kindling to make a fire so she can make these cakes. And once that's done, they're finished. The famine was bad. 
And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first, and bring it to me, and afterwards make some for yourself and your son. What? This godly man is going to tell, he's going to put his own needs above this woman and her son, this widow? That doesn't seem like a right thing to do, does it? Well, in the natural, it doesn't. But the Lord was going to bless this woman. And Elijah here was not being selfish. He was rather allowing God to use him as a test for this woman. Can she worship God when she has so little, when there is a great need, a very significant need for her and her son? Can you, will you, provide for my servant Elijah? And she knew there was something about Elijah that was extraordinary. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, Elijah said, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. And so she went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he, she and, he and her household ate for many days. And the bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Elijah. That is just so amazing, isn't it? Amazing. When there's very little, God can do miracles. And for three years, at least, this drought was going on. This was, she didn't have something in the cupboard hiding it away for a rainy day. No, this was all she had. And could God use it? Yes, he could. In 2 Kings chapter 4, there was also a need to pay a debt for another woman. I said, a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elijah, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, so now she's a widow, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So Elijah said to her, What what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. And then he said to her, Go and borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shut the door behind you and your sons, and then pour it out into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. And so she went from him. She shut the door behind her and her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now it came to pass, when the vessels were full, that he that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel because they had, already, they had filled up all the vessels. So the oil ceased. And then she came and told the man of God and he said, now go and sell the oil and pay your debt and you and your son shall live on the rest. And what a great and awesome thing that is. Again, another great need. Now she's a widow. God loves the fatherless and the widow. And just as Jesus now is providing for these people, he hasn't changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He hasn't changed from back in the Old Testament to the New Testament. His heart is still the same. He loves people. He wants to minister to people and provide for them. He wants to provide for you. What are you going through today? He can take whatever we have and cause it to multiply or be enough, but pray, but pray and give thanks to him for what you do have. There is a secret. So often I just complain about what I don't have. 
So Jesus, back in our text, he says, bring them here to me. And I love this because it reminds me of the proverb, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Or what about Proverbs? Commit, literally roll your works out before the Lord. Roll your plans out before him and your thoughts will be established. And so Jesus is saying, bring what you have and roll it out before me. Let me take a look at it. Let's see what you got. And there's the lesson for us because when we have a need, instead of going on the phone and calling a neighbor or a friend or a relative or searching for your wallet to find that credit card that hasn't been maxed out yet, that has a $10,000 credit limit, why not go to the Lord first? Now, don't be condemned, because I lived on credit cards before I came to the Lord and got myself into a lot of trouble. And there's good reasons to use credit cards. If you can pay it off at the end of the month, if you live with it responsibly, and so I'm just a little footnote here, because some of you are going, well, I use my credit Well, I do too. I use it for points. <laughs> And then around December, we trade them in and we go to Florida on those points. But we pay it off every month. But he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And in Mark's gospel, it tells us that Jesus made them sit in groups of 50 and hundreds. And by doing things this way, he may have averted a riot. Think about this. You've got 5,000, 10,000, maybe 15,000 people, and all of a sudden he's doing this multiplication, and if they were thronged all around him, they would probably crush him. But what did he do? He did all things decently and in order. He didn't just start pulling out stuff in the thing and handing out fish and people just stacking on and, you know, freaking out. You know how that works. You see it at Walmart on Black Friday, Right? People running over themselves, trampling other people, walking out with TVs, mixers. People in their pajamas doing this stuff. But he, he's in order. He has them sit down in 50s and groups of hundreds. He has complete control over this crowd. Think of that. That's the best crowd control. He created order and a way to dispense this food without causing a riot. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, there's the secret. He blessed and he broke it and he gave the loaves, notice, to the disciples, and then the disciples gave to the multitudes. So by providing this bread for them in this miraculous fashion, Jesus was showing that he was not only the provider, but he's also the Messiah, the bread of life. The Jews had a tradition that the Messiah would miraculously feed the people with bread from heaven as Moses had done. And he did. And the day after this event, when he crossed back over to the western side of the Galilee, on the left side, he showed up at Gennesaret, and specifically to Capernaum, and the multitude saw him. And what did they say? Or what does the, the Bible say? It says, therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? And they said to Jesus at Gennesaret, our fathers ate the manna in the desert. And we've already looked at that in, in Exodus 16. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread and from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then he said to them, 
And then they said to Jesus, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And I believe there's at least two meanings to this. Certainly, God will provide for you physically. If he cares about you spiritually, isn't he going to care about your physical nature too? Your physical body? He does. But also when you come to Jesus, your search is over. If you're hungry for righteousness, if you're hungry to to know God and to go to heaven and to have the assurance now and to live a life that is purposeful in this life right now. And he wants to give you that because it is a blessing. I am so blessed to be here sharing this with you. It's one of my greatest joys. I get to do this. But he wants to impart to you spiritually as well. Come to him. You, it's one-stop shopping. You don't need to go to Buddha. You don't need to go to Allah. You don't need to go to, the, you know, to Tibet somewhere in a mountain and get in a lotus position with a loincloth and, and have incense and, and do all this stuff. No, you can come to Christ. He, he's the one who's, who, who created all things. And he loves you. He died for you and me. For God so loved the world that he gave, that God the Father gave his Son as a gift, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, would not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the greatest thing going. Even better than my natural food, because 70 or 80 years I'm here on this planet, but then eternity. Think about it. What's more important? The food that I put in my stomach or the fact that I know I'm going to heaven and I'll spend eternity, which will never end, with God. With the one who loves me, who's all perfect. Where there's joys and pleasures forevermore. I don't know, it sounds like a pretty good deal. Even if I starve from this moment onward until I perished, if all I had was the Spirit of God in me and hope for glory, that would be fine with me. I wouldn't enjoy the process. I might call you up and say, hey, do you got a Snickers bar you can spare? But I'd rather do that and spend eternity. 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 How long do you have? Most of us are in our 50s, 60s, some of you are 70s. You may only have 20 or 30 more years on this planet and then eternity. What are you going to do with that remainder of time? But Jesus here in, was speaking about this time when God provided for Israel 40 years. And this manna, it tells us that it was like white coriander seed and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. That doesn't sound too bad, does it? That sounds like something you could put jam on. You know, or, or maybe put it over toast or something like that and spread some raspberries over the top of it and a glass of milk. Even Jesus, even the prophets spoke of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, out of you shall come forth the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Obviously speaking of Jesus. And the name Bethlehem, what does it mean? The house of bread. Even the very place that he was born, the house of bread. He is the bread of life. He provided in the desert in the 40 years, and now, even in the time of the kings, he was providing bread. And then now he is providing for these 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 souls that had come out to hear him 
And finally, it makes its summation, doesn't it, in Luke 24, or Luke 22, excuse me. It says, when the hour had come, he sat down with the 12 disciples, and then he said to them, and this was the Last Supper, he said, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it, notice, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and he gave thanks. There it is again. He gave thanks. And he said this, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and here it is. Remember he said, I am the bread of life. Well, now he's there at the supper having a Passover meal. The very last one he would eat before he would be crucified. And he takes the bread and he tears off a chunk and he hands it to his guys. And they hand it around Take it. And he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is broken for you. Jesus, still in the business of providing, not just for the Israel in the, for the 40 years in the wilderness, not just for the widow in Elijah's time, not just for the multitude of thousands on the Sea of Gennesaret, but now for his own disciples. I'm going to provide for you. Eat this. Take it down into you. And he took the bread. He gave thanks. Broke it. He says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. But notice, he looked up to heaven when he was there with the the disciples there on the side, on the eastern shore of the lake, as he was feeding these 5,000, he looks up to heaven. He looks up to heaven, and he gives thanks. He blessed it, and he broke, and he gave thanks. And Jesus didn't complain about how many loaves or how many fishes were there. And notice the order. Again, he gave thanks. He looked to heaven. That's what we need to do to give thanks, to look up to heaven. And then he distributed to his disciples, and then his disciples distributed to the masses. Notice that the Lord could have, uh, he could have just made the bread and the fish miraculously appear in their laps, couldn't he? But he used people, he used his servants. And God usually uses his servants. He uses you and me to minister to others. And that happens. I've seen it happen in this body, and it's so wonderful to see. Just your heart of love and generosity when you know somebody's struggling, or when you hear they're going through something, you pull together, you do things like that. You're being his hands and his feet. Because after all, couldn't he have just created the bread and the fish right in front of everybody's lap? He could have done that. Didn't he do that in the creation week? In Genesis chapter 1 and 2? Couldn't he have just said, let there be fish, salmon, brook trout, already cooked. He could have given them the very best bread, the, the pane Italian from Wegmans. Nice and warm, just out of the oven, crunch. He could have done it. He could have done it. If he spoke all things into existence, it would be a no-brainer, easy for him to do. 
but he chose to use his disciple. And God very often uses his people to accomplish his will. And notice that you don't hear the young man complaining about the fish. And when we give, notice this young man gave up his lunch. And when we give, the Lord makes sure that we're taken care of as well. God then multiplied what was on hand to fulfill the need. Do you believe that God can do this in your life? I believe it. I've seen it more than once. God blessing my wife and my daughter and I. And I know he's done it for you. Have you been desperate enough in a, in a, dis, a desperate strait where to call on the Lord in a situation like that? We all have. Remember many years ago, my uncle who, had, um, who was on his deathbed and uh, he had made a promise to my father. My father died when I was like six or seven years old. And uh, my uncle Mick made a promise to my dad. My dad made him promise. He says, hey, look out for Rob. And so he did. And throughout my life, he showed up at different times and in different ways. And now he was dying of cancer on his deathbed. And I remember I was on staff here. This is back when Jeff was here. And... My wife and I, we didn't have the money to, and it was kind of a quick thing. And so I knew he only had a few days to live up there in Northport, Michigan, the northern part of Michigan. I didn't have any money to go. I, I really didn't. We really didn't. And so, funny how this happens. The Lord puts it on somebody's heart to give us plane tickets. And not only gave us the plane tickets, but gave us, I think, three or $400 in cash, set us up in a, a hotel right on Traverse Bay, and provided a rental car for the two days that we were there. And I got to minister to my uncle. I got to share the gospel with him. And I believe he received it. I said, do you have Jesus? I want to talk to you about Jesus. And I talked to him about Jesus. And with his very faint words, he says, I have Jesus in my heart. So they all ate, verse 20, and they were filled. And they took up the 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. And isn't it interesting that it's 12 baskets full? 12 disciples, 12 baskets of fragments. And why did Jesus take up the fragments? We really don't know. I mean, did he do it so that nothing could be wasted? Or, or did he do it so that they could see and everybody else could see that this was a notable miracle? Because when you only have five loaves and two fishes and now you're filling up 12 baskets full of fragments, something you know, really miraculous has happened here. Wouldn't you agree? And it proves it. The baskets prove it. They're filled with, filled with fragments from what God had done. Now, for those who had eaten, there were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And so, before we continue on to verse 22, John's gospel tells us something. It says that when, um, when at, right, after, right on the heels of this miraculous trove, uh, this miraculous 
thing of the fishes, or excuse me, the, the fish and the bread being multiplied, that Jesus perceived they were about to make him king. They, were, they wanted to make him king because he was their meal ticket. And they were hoping that he too would throw off the yoke of Rome from the, from the Jewish people. So now they would be fed. Everybody likes free lunch. Let's make him king. So what does Jesus do? He tells his disciples to get in a boat and get out of here. Get out of here, guys, because before long, they're going to be making you guys managers of this whole thing. Can you see that happening? I mean, they they were so amazed at what Jesus did. They're like, Jesus knew that it wasn't safe. It wasn't good for their hearts for them to be around when this crowd was so enamored with Jesus. They wanted to make him king. And your disciples, you know, they can be the prime ministers or they can be the, the heads of the, you know, the managers, the, the, the prominent place. And Jesus is going, no, that's not why we're here. Guys, get in the boat. Go off to the um, western shore. I'll see you over there. And that's exactly what he does. And this event that we're going to look at now is uh, recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, and John's gospel. It says, verse 22, that immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. So now he's going from east to west while he sent the multitudes away. Now Mark's gospel tells us in chapter 6, verse 45, that he went to the other side to Bethsaida, but John's gospel tells us in chapter 6, verse 16 or 17, that they went toward Capernaum. So which is it? How could it be Bethsaida? We know Bethsaida, but evidently there were two Bethsaidas, one over on the eastern shore where he did this miracle, but there also evidently was a Bethsaida of Galilee just to the north of Capernaum, a small fishing village. We believe that that's where they were heading. And it might even be a a, a nickname for Capernaum, but I I think it was probably just another small fishing village. And so, um, and we find out later, as, as we get to the end of this, that they're shooting for the Bethsaida of Galilee, But because the wind and the the storm was coming from the north, it drove the boat further off course and brought them to Gennesaret. That's ultimately where they landed. Because of the storm, where they were rowing all night. And that's where we get into this. So when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain by himself to pray. And now when evening came, he was there alone. And and, and there are mountains on each side of the, the, the Sea of Galilee. And when we go to Israel, we visit them. We've been to this place over on the on the western shore, or the eastern shore, excuse me, and there's a mountain range right there, and Jesus went up into one of those mountains while his disciples are trying to make their way across westward to the other side. But the boat was now in the middle of the, the sea, tossed by great waves. The wind was contrary. They were about two or three miles across that thing, because it's about eight miles wide in its largest diameter, or largest uh, width. But in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And this fourth watch is somewhere between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. The fourth watch of the night. The darkest time of the night. Jesus, in the midst of this storm. And Jesus knew that this storm was going to happen, and he didn't prevent it. And isn't it true that God often uses trials? He allows us to go through difficulties to refine us, to get us to depend upon him, to see that he is God. 
Because I don't always see that if everything is going hunky-dory. But it's when I'm in a strait, when I'm in a trial, when I'm trying to cross the, the, the sea or the lake, and because it's enclosed by mountains, I got this horrible wind coming from the north, and it's driving me and pushing me. It probably came from the, the northwest, and so it's, they have to str- row even harder, and it's still pushing them further, further south. He may not keep the trial from coming, but he'll be with you in it. Remember the Hebrew lads who were in the fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar? Was God with them? He didn't deliver them from the trial. I'm sure they would have liked to have not been in that fiery furnace, but they weren't touched when they were in that furnace because Christ was in there with him. And unfortunately, it only seems the way I'm going to grow is to go through sometimes hardship. To go through crises. Anybody here been through a crisis? <laughs> In the last couple of years? I don't know. Probably not. I mean, everything's been really great for you all, right? Oh, yes. Everything has just been swimmingly well. No, every one of you have gone through a crisis, including myself, a few actually, on top of one another. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost! They thought he was a phantom, and they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. I love Isaiah, it says this verse, uh, it says, um, But know this, says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by your name, you are mine, and here it is. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Don't you love that? Very applicable to this, this thing that they're going through. And when Jesus said, it is I, literally what he said was, I am. In the Greek, ego, I, me. He said, I am. Does that sound familiar? Remember, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. When Moses spoke to God in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, what did God tell him was his name? He says, I am that I am. And Jesus was saying to them when, he, when they saw him in the darkest hour of the night, can you imagine that, guys? You're out there, the waves and the wind, and you're, you're thinking you're, this is over, right? And then you look over, and you can barely see it, and you see Jesus walking across the water. Wouldn't you freak out? Is he able to walk on water? Did he create physics? Did he create physics, the laws that we have? Does he have, can he harness those things? Can he change things for the moment for himself? He did. And Peter answered and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out on the water. And so he said, come. Can you imagine that? I love this so much. I've been out on this lake three times so far in my life. And we've taken boats across it from one side to the other. And this is so picturesque to me. And I am so blown away by this. Jesus is out there standing in the surf and the waves are lapping against his feet and he sees the guys freaking out and Peter says, well, 
being impetuous as he always is. Lord, if it's you, let me come out to you. Come on. Let's see it. Do it. Too bad there wasn't the rest of you. Peter was the only one asking. And, and, and this interaction with Peter is only given in Matthew's gospel. Of the three accounts, this interaction is only recorded for us in Matthew. But before we're too hard on Peter for asking to walk on water, let's consider that he's the only one other than Jesus who has ever done this. He's the only one. What were the other disciples thinking when Peter suggested it? Can you imagine it? Lord, let me come out. The other guy's going, <laughs> watch this. He's going to get out and he's going to go like a lead anchor right to the bottom. Looking forward to that. I'm probably exchanging a few dollars. I bet he doesn't make it. I bet he goes down. <laughs> how many of you uh, would be willing to do the same thing? And how come the other disciples didn't counter in? When Jesus says, come on, Peter, can we come too? Yeah, come on, just empty the boat, guys. Come on, let's just walk across. Who needs a boat? <laughs> can you imagine what it looked like, a bunch of guys walking off across the water? How many times does something seem impossible and we don't ask the Lord? Let's not let the impossible keep us from asking. Because where we end, he begins. It honors the Lord when you come to him with impossibilities. Because you're basically saying, I can't do this. And I am totally incapable, incapable of doing whatever it is. And Lord, I come to you because you're the only one who can do something. And I'm counting on you. And right now we really need you, God. And I, he, situations like that are irresistible to God. It's almost like, oh, I can't stand it anymore. i got to go help these guys. Their faith in me is so strong. I mean, the, their faith wasn't really that strong. Otherwise, all 12 of them would be out there playing in the, in the surf, standing on the water. But don't let the impossible keep your prayers anemic. Sometimes my prayers are very small because I can handle them. Or at least I think I can. Oh, Lord, help me with this. Help me with that. Knowing very well that I'm going to do something the next day that's going to alleviate the problem or the stress. Right? And there's nothing wrong with praying for those things. There's nothing wrong with doing what, with what God has given you. But when you come to the end of your resources, when you come to the end of yourself and it is impossible, do you just give up? Do you put it on the credit card? Do you say, ah, I don't know about this Jesus stuff. I was, might as well just go back to Buddha. Might as well go back to being a Zoroastrian. Might as well just go back to the kingdom hall with the Jehovah's Witnesses, where there are no miracles, there's no life, no joy. I'll just go back to there. No, God's going, no. Ask. Ask me. Do you trust me? Let's grow in our faith. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, notice Peter, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And notice that as long as Peter had his eyes on Jesus and not on the circumstances, the wind and the waves, he remained afloat. He remained on top of the water. And this is not just some story or allegory, folks. This really happened. This is a historical event. This is not a children's story. I hate that. 
When people say, oh, Jonah and the whale, it's such a cute little story. No, that is historical fact. Jesus said it. I believe it. But when he got his eyes off of Jesus, he began to sink. So obviously the lesson here is to keep your eyes on Jesus and all will be well. In Psalm 32, in verse 8, God speaking through, this, through David, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. I will guide you with my eye. How can God guide you with his eye if you're not looking at his eye? Have you ever seen that when, in those, those crime shows when the guy is shackled up like this and he's looking at somebody and he just kind of looks over like this, saying, look over there, look over there? He's guiding with the eye. But if you're not looking at the eye, you don't get the message. Follow? He says, I will guide you with my eye. That means we've got to keep our focus, our eyes on Jesus. Always keep your eyes on Jesus. The circumstances around you are like those wind and the waves that Peter was so enamored with, you know, after a few moments, as he stepped out. I just, I can't stand to think about what was it like to get out of the boat? You know, just to... That moment when he's sitting on the edge, you know, and the boat's rocking like that, and he puts one foot out, and he's like, well, it's either going to work or I'm going down. And so he puts the foot down, and to his amazement, he's standing, and I imagine he's going, <laughs> and then he looks at the Lord, and the Lord's going, come. And he's like, like, like a little baby taking its first step, you know. You know, and, the, and he walks out, and then all of a sudden, he's looking around at the wind and the waves and the clouds, and he's going, oh, my goodness. And then he starts to sink, and the Lord, he says, Lord, save me, and the Lord grabs him. And he pulls him up. Do you feel like that sometimes? Do you feel like Peter, like you're being swallowed up in an ocean? Do you feel like your life is just caving in upon you and the darkness is just surrounding you? That there's no hope? Three words. Lord, save me. You didn't need to start praying in 17th century English. Lord, I pray that thou mightest, you know, touch my heart and bring me up hither from this depth, you know. You don't have to, nothing flowery, just simple. Help. He responds to English. And you don't need a lot of words. Just a heart that's honest and real. <laughs> Help. Help, Lord. So the lesson here is quite simple. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. If we can do that, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We sing that song. We're going to sing it at the end here in just a few minutes. But when things are all around us falling apart, the wind is and the rain is beating against us, when the trials of life are pounding us to smithereens, keep your eyes on Jesus and rest in him. Some Christians, they get into this stuff and they're derailed. They lose confidence. They lose faith. Some even walk away from the Lord because of the calamities and the events that occur in their life. And it's, it's like that soil, you know, the, the seed being planted by the soil and the, and the concerns of life, and it just it gets choked out and they have no faith. Pray that the Lord would give you a greater measure of faith. They've gotten their eyes off of Jesus and onto the problems. You know, sometimes the best way to overcome a problem is not to be overwhelmed by it. Don't think about it. You know, if you're struggling with something, oh Lord, I, I have this problem with gambling, and all you do is think about gambling, gambling, I, I can't do it anymore, I, I gotta stop, oh, I wanna do it, I don't wanna do it. <laughs> and you have this struggle inside, 
I gotta do it. It could be alcohol. It could be pornography. <laughs> and the battle is on. What are you gonna do? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Get on your knees if you have to. Confess it. It'll pass, trust me. Passion always passes. Whether it's a passion for a drug, passion for sex, if it's a passion for alcohol or drugs, the drug thing can be a little bit tricky because there's a chemical thing that's just drawing you, drawing you until you finally wean off it. But usually passion is a flash in the pan. Five or ten minutes, if you can make it, you're going to be home free. But they got their eyes off of Jesus. I love Psalm 121. It says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. And what is the hills? Those are those impossibilities that I can't conquer. The, the lake I can't cross because of the storm. It could be the, the food that I don't have because I'm broke. <laughs> that mountain, I will look onto the hills. But where does my help come from? I'm looking at the thing. I'm sizing it up. But where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Think about the children of Israel going through the Red Sea, remember? God tells him to stretch out his hand. Stretch out the rod, Moses. And he does, and the people go through the water. And now God, Jesus, and the Sea of Galilee, now his servants are going above the water. The barrier has been lifted. The sea has been parted. The lake has been solid, at least enough under their feet to where they could walk across it. Going through it or being on top of it, that's the life of a believer who walks in faith. They're not stuck on the circumstances that can just cloud us and, 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 and grip us with fear. Pray the impossible things and don't give up. And wait and see what the Lord does, especially if they are good things. It's one thing to pray for a house by the lake that's, you know, 72,000 square feet with a, you know, grand piano in the front room with the lights on it, you know, overlooking the lake and, you know, having all the fancy stuff. If I pray for that, God's like, Rob, you can't handle that. You would just be a mess. You'd be, uh, you'd walk away from me and be just a puddle of mush. Ah, but you want something that's on my heart and you pray for that? Now we're in business. Now he may give you the house on the lake. If he does, Invite us over for dinner. I'm only kidding. And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. And then those who were in the boat came and they worshipped him. And they said, truly this is the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. So they were trying to go across that lake. And the wind was just pushing them down and down and down. And so they were meant to go straight across, but they went down into Gennesaret, the same location where we visit Israel when we go to, when we have our tour up there in that part of the country in Israel. We're at Nof Gennesar. Beautiful place. That's where they landed. And Magdala is right next to it, where Mary Magdalene was born, where she lived. And you remember that, you guys? We were there, we saw it. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might, not only that they might just touch the hem of his garment. 
speaking of his authority as a, as, a, as a man of God, and certainly more than a man of God, the very man God himself, Jesus. And as many as touched him were made perfectly well. But I'd imagine there's other people looking at that. If the worship team could come on up, I'd imagine there's people at that time going, well, I'm not going to touch his garment. Well, they wouldn't be made whole then. Required something of them, didn't it? It required faith to believe that he was able to do it and then to actually get up off my chair and do something about it. Doesn't faith provoke a response? Real, true, biblical faith will provoke you to do something. And when you come to the edge and it's impossible, turn your eyes upon Jesus and let him fix that mountain, that thing that is insurmountable, the thing that nobody can get across, the thing that seems impossible in the natural. God loves things like that when you come to the impossible. And God has done impossible things. I've seen it. I've seen it in this fellowship. I've seen it in some of your lives. I've seen it in the life of this fellowship. God doing things that I couldn't have imagined. There was no way I could have figured it out in the natural. And God loves you, folks. And there's a lot of needs represented here. There's a lot of hurting folks. Many of us are hurting for one thing or another. Will you come to Christ today? Will you turn your eyes upon him again and be done with trying to um, manufacture some result or from, from trying to figure it out and, and do it in my own flesh? You have to rely upon him. I must rely upon him. And you honor the Lord when you come to him with your impossibilities because what you're saying at that moment is very simple. Lord, if you are who you say you are, you may not give me everything I want, but the things that I need, Lord, I'm coming to you because you're the God of all things. He could move on a heart and change things in an instant, and he has, and he does, and he will continue to do so. Why? Because he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the, the word of God become flesh. He's the Logos. He's the one who knows all things. Aren't you glad you know him? I'm so glad. And it is such a great, wonderful privilege to just be together like this, isn't it? And just be exhorted and encouraged. But let's turn our eyes upon Jesus. Let's stand together and we'll worship this, this last song. And just let the Lord minister to your heart. Lord, we thank you. Lord, pray that Lord, you would be able to lead us with your eye. Lord, as we grow closer to you and grow in our maturity and our relationship with you, Lord, that, Lord, you would be able to guide us with our eye. And I thank you for the many times, Lord, when I'm just not watching, I'm not keeping my eye on you, and yet, God, in your mercy, you change things and, and, and you winnow my path, in a sense. You, you keep me from going off that deep end. And you keep me on that path, Lord, in your mercy. I thank you for that. But Lord, as, as we all grow in our relationship with you, God, help us to keep our eyes on you. And Lord, it's a challenge in these days. But Lord, we love you and we thank you. We know you have the very best for us and you love us. And so have your way today, Lord. Bless my brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Amen. Amen.